0: Welcome to episode 64 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. F. Scott Fitzgerald won Sheila Graham's heart by doing two things. It wasn't the silver fox coat he bought for her birthday, although she was thrilled with it because it was the first birthday gift she had ever received. He didn't win her with fancy dinners in the Trocadero, and it wasn't his standing as one of the great figures of literary modernism the soul of his generation. Fitzgerald was out of print by the time they met, and many people dismissed his books as glorifying the excesses of the rich. Young writers considered Fitzgerald out of step with the spirit of the Depression. In any case, Sheila had never read his books. The first thing Fitzgerald did to win Sheila was to take her side after she had a bad day at work. She had returned from a studio visit upset and crying, Scott listened to what happened and then he put all of his energy into helping her get even. What happened is this. Sheila visited the set of Topper Takes a Trip when it was filming in 1937 to gather items for her syndicated daily column Hollywood Today, a Gadabout's notebook. Instead of trying to flatter the stars or befriend them, Sheila Graham took another angle. She was part of the unholy trio that included gossip columnist Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Sheila had been wary of making the visit to the topper set that day because she had recently written a few salty paragraphs on the film's star, Constance Bennett. When the moment came for Sheila's introduction to the star, Constance Bennett looked her over took a long pause and then said, it's hard to believe that a girl as pretty as you is the biggest bitch in Hollywood. Hurt and angry, Sheila fired back, not the biggest bitch, Connie, the second biggest bitch. After that, Connie responded by freezing out Sheila. Bennett walked off the set with the producer, complaining about why such people were let run around the set. Nobody could give the cold shoulder like Constance Bennett. Louise Brooks once wrote that Constance Bennett made an art form of making other women feel invisible. Louise recalled sitting in a dinner party across from Sheila, or, sorry, across from Constance Bennett, whom she called one of the Hollywood deplorables. After she made it to the car, Sheila burst into tears. She hadn't been long in Hollywood. She had been alone, doing her best to hustle a career as a writer. She found it difficult to gain access to the stars who had been friendly to her when she worked as a columnist in New York. She had to publish every day and was under constant pressure to come up with juicy stories. When she told Scott about it later, he listened with compassion to her story about Connie's shabby treatment. Fitzgerald responded swiftly and sat down to write a response for Sheila to put in her column. Scott was a man who knew how to hold a grudge. He kept a list of people who had given him offense. During the period from 1925 to 1929, he had recorded 66 names on his list. Scott waited for the opportunity to repay each snub and insult. Fitzgerald applied himself in earnest as if the task were as important as one of his novels, essays, or screenplays. He wrote and revised honing and weighing each word until the barbs were sharp enough to carve the Sunday roast. Sheila began the hit piece with her own words. It's lucky no children happened to be on set yesterday. Her language was absolutely shocking. Then Scott gave her two sentences, which delivered a final blow. Poor Connie, faded flapper of 1919, and now symbolically cast as a ghost in her latest production. In two terse sentences, he makes Constance Bennett an old has-been. Is there anything more romantic than a man who writes a withering insult to the bitch who ruined your day? For Sheila, it was irresistible to feel so loved and protected that finally she had someone in her corner. The second thing that Fitzgerald did to win Sheila's heart occurred one day when she took a bath in his flat. Scott entered the bathroom carrying a pillow, which he put behind her head to make her comfortable, and then he left. Sheila was so moved by how he looked her in the eyes and did not sneak a peek at her naked body in the water. Scott did not invade her privacy. Ever since Sheila had turned 14, men had ogled her breasts. Scott was different. He made her feel like a human being rather than a piece of meat. Sheila Graham lived a life more interesting than most novels or Hollywood melodramas. She was born in Lily Sheel in 1904 to a large Jewish family in Leeds. The family soon after moved to London's East End. Her father was a tailor, and when he died of tuberculosis, her mother was overwhelmed trying to support the six children. She was a cleaner in a bathhouse. When Lily was six years old, she was taken to live in an orphanage. She didn't understand why she had to live there when she had a mother, unlike so many of the other children. The reality of her new new life became all too real when she was stripped and bathed with other boys and girls, and then had her head shaved down to the roots as a precaution against lice. Until she was 12 years old, her head was shaved every month. Young Lily had eczema. She was always starving, and she felt ugly and awkward, not to mention alone and unloved. One coping mechanism she had in the orphanage was to steal food from the teacher's kitchen. She never had enough to eat and thought about food constantly. Whenever the kitchen was unattended, she ducked in and grabbed a meat pie or handfuls of sugar and powdered cocoa that she would stuff by the handful into her bloomers. Later, in secret or shared with a friend, she would combine the two for makeshift chocolate bars. She made up excuses to go to the infirmary so she could sneak handfuls of apricot jam they kept there. When the principal began offering a small cash prize for the student who could memorize selected poems, Lily became the best so that she could spend the money on food from the shops. The contest made the first student to reach the principal's office the winner. Lily would have the lines down cold by the time she reached the office. Even if another student beat her there, they would eventually blow a line, leaving Lily the opportunity to step in and recite it perfectly. From a tender age, she learned that words on the page were a lifeline, a method to overcome hardship. Lily grew to become head girl. She was called the most clever girl in school, and her teachers encouraged her to take a scholarship and continue her education but Lily left the orphanage when she was 14 years old. Her mother was dying of stomach cancer. Lily was needed at home to do the housework, shopping, and cooking. She felt trapped and miserable. An older brother convinced her mother to let Lily go to work, and with that money, they could hire help around the house. Lily worked in a factory making stamped address plates. One day, a supervisor caught her dancing in the lavatory and sacked her on the spot. She worked for a time as a domestic in Brighton and hated that also. Lily took a job back in London in a department store. She demonstrated a new toothbrush, one that was designed to clean the backside of your teeth. The brush only did the backside, which meant you still needed a regular toothbrush for the front. It sounds mad, doesn't it? The company, to no surprise, folded. Lily went through the cards she was given by men who wanted to hire her. One man had said to look him up someday because if she could sell those toothbrushes, she could sell anything. He was a veteran and an importer who sold various bric-a-brac without having any plan or business sense. Lily fell for the man who was named Major John Graham Gillum. His wealthy sister refused to continue to finance his harebrained schemes once he wed Lily. Johnny, as she called him, was much older. He was impotent, and maybe because he couldn't perform in bed, he was keen to push Lily into the arms of rich men who might back his business deals. He enrolled Lily in a French finishing school. Then he placed her into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, convinced that she could make it on the stage. She was humiliated doing Shakespeare in her Cockney accent around all the swells. When that failed, Johnny said she should take singing and dancing lessons. He pushed her to try out as a quarry. She became one of the Cochrane's Young Ladies, which was the British equivalent of the Ziegfeld Follies. Lily decided to change her name. Sheila seemed much more elegant, and then she took the surname Graham from Johnny. Sheila was a hit on stage and received many invitations to parties and dinners from men of society. A rich man with a title served her an elaborate lunch one day. Afterwards, he opened up his shirt and asked Sheila to pinch his nipples and then moaned harder when she tried to accommodate him. Johnny had published a book about his experiences in the war at Gallipoli. One day he sat trying to write an article for a newspaper. When Sheila criticized his efforts, he told her to try and write one for herself if it were so easy. She did, and it was published in the Daily Express as The Stage Door Johnnies by a Chorus Girl. Sheila took the money and spent it on a private tutor in London University. She thought it would help her to become a better writer. She was paid two guineas for her first article, which only paid for two lessons. She was discouraged but continued to write for the broadsheets. She wrote articles that people noticed. One was aimed at young brides. It was a debate about the merits of a car or a baby in the first year of marriage. Sheila advised newlyweds to go for the car. In July of 1933, Sheila sailed to New York to meet with John Wheeler, who was the editor for the North American Newspaper Alliance. Sheila was about to publish a novel the following month called Gentleman Crook with a London publisher. She thought that if she met with Wheeler before it was published, she could promote herself based on the potential reputation she had, but before the actual reviews came in. She went on her own steam. Her husband Johnny stayed in London. Although they divorced in 1937, she stayed in touch with Johnny and supported him financially until his death in 1965. Sheila had no friends, and she had no room for failure when she arrived in the States. She impressed John Wheeler with her ambition, her enthusiasm, and her ability to write articles that people talked about. One was, Who Cheats More?, and cataloged men by nationality for their predisposition to adultery. She published articles in four or five different papers at the time, and pulled in anywhere from $300 to $500 a week. Sheila had an affair with her boss, John Wheeler, who opened many doors for her, but Sheila's talent for writing columns is how she made a name for herself. At one party, Claire Booth had asked who would get the most coverage by the papers if they all died on the same day—President Roosevelt, the Pope, the Prince of Wales, or Charlie Chaplin. Sheila recalled the crowd of the party arguing for one or the other— and she remembers how insecure she felt and outmatched by the wits from Broadway and the Algonquin Round Table. She didn't really know how to form an opinion, as everyone else did there, with confidence, but she kept up the act of a polished woman of London and soldiered on. She talked John Wheeler into giving her the Hollywood column by claiming that she could do it cheaper than the woman who already had the job. Wheeler sent Sheila out there to live and file a daily column syndicated for 65 newspapers called Hollywood Today around Christmas time in 1935. Sheila noted that all the important things in her life seemed to happen around Christmas. Sheila published her first column from Hollywood on the 6th of January, 1936, using the name of Ralph Fleischman of The New Yorker she finagled tickets to an exclusive party hosted by Marion Davies in her massive beach house. Instead of gushing about the stars there, or what they wore or said, Sheila slated Marion's paintings. She didn't know at the time that they depicted Marion in her various film roles. But her cutting remarks set the tone for Sheila's copy, which offered more barbs than compliments. Typical of Sheila's style was what she wrote after a visit to the set of Love on the Run in 1936. Clark Gable threw back his handsome head and exposed a neckline on which a thin ridge of fat is beginning to collect. Before she met Scott Fitzgerald, Sheila had a passionate affair with the director, King Vidor. Sheila believed that she emitted signals to men that inflamed them. She talked about her sexual magnetism in tangible terms, like a scent she put out that men responded to. She spent nearly all of 1936 with King Vidor. He had proposed marriage, and they talked about building a life together. Then, right before Christmas in 1936, he went off and eloped with another woman. Sheila was crushed, but not for long. She was pursued by the Marquess of Donegal, who dithered over whether his mother would accept Sheila into the family. When the Marquess finally proposed in 1937, Sheila was established socially in Hollywood. John Wheeler had provided her with a letter of introduction to Robert Benchley, the most popular resident at the time in the Garden of Alla, the hotel and residential spot chosen by writers and bohemians in Hollywood. Sheila had guests over to celebrate her engagement. Robert Benchley had them all invited to an after-party at his place at the Garden of Allah. It was there that Sheila first met Scott Fitzgerald. It was Bastille Day, the 14th of July, 1937. Scott sat alone in a chair smoking. Sheila noticed him because he seemed to just emanate the color blue in the corner as he sat quietly drinking Coca-Cola. They didn't speak, but after Scott left, Benchley rang the author, inviting him back. Scott wanted to know who she was and if she were still there. Perhaps in a bid to acknowledge their meeting without having met, she mentioned him in a column later in July 1937. In the same paragraph, Sheila congratulates Joan Blondel for losing weight, chastises Claudette Colbert for gaining weight, tipping the scales at a whopping 115 pounds. Then she added, personal nomination for the unhappiest looking male in Hollywood, author Scott Fitzgerald. They met a second time at a formal dinner for the anti-Nazi league that Dorothy Parker held in the Coconut Grove. They had a brief and awkward exchange. Scott, still drinking Coca-Cola, remarked to Sheila that, that he liked her, and she replied that she liked him too. He was put off by what he considered a forward response. He was afraid she was common. The third time they met was when the writer Eddie Mayer, who lived in the Garden of Allah, invited Sheila to dine with him and Scott. She had tickets to the Hollywood Bowl with Daily Mail writer Jonah Ruddy. They went to meet Scott and Eddie instead. Sheila and Scott spent the whole evening on the dance floor, ignoring the other men. The sparks flew. At the start of their relationship, they socialized as a couple. In the Garden of Allah, they joined in with a favorite pastime of the literati. They called it the game. It was charades, played by the likes of Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, the actor and Benchley's shadow, Charles Butterworth, Eddie Mayer, John O'Hara, Mark Connolly, Oscar Levant, and on occasion, George Kaufman. Sheila felt intimidated. Their references flew fast over her head. Scott advised her to look bored when she was around them, and they wouldn't be able to guess how much she knew. Scott advised Sheila not to be so eager in their company, but to let the others seek her out. During one party, someone made a comment about Willa Cather. Sheila blundered in response, "And just who is Willa Cather?" "No doubt," she said in a high-hat tone. By the reaction, Sheila could tell she said the wrong thing, but she didn't know who Cather was. Acting superior didn't always protect Sheila from being found out. Sheila was invited to give a lecture tour across five cities, for which she received $200 for each appearance. It was a huge boost to her career. Scott read the speech she had prepared and decided that it was all wrong. She couldn't just deliver gossip. He chided her that she needed to tell the audience something, something important, like how the movies shaped their lives and why the director was the most important person on a film set. He wanted Sheila to tell the audience that their kitchen looks the way it does because they saw Norma Shearer have one just like it, or they dress themselves a certain way because of Joan Crawford. Then he sat down and rewrote the speech entirely, which delivers a lengthy address on the difference between the Lubitsch touch and a saga such as as Gone with the Wind, which was helmed by George Cucor, Victor Fleming, then Sam Wood, then back to F- Victor Fleming. Scott's speech is long, pedantic, and dull. It talks down to the audience. No wonder it received savage reviews. One day when she was visiting the Garden of Allah, someone made a reference to Proust. Sheila didn't understand it, and afterwards she went to a bookshop and bought the seven volumes of Remembrance of Things Past, when Fitzgerald saw what she was determined to do, he intervened with a schedule. Scott said she needed to have a schedule to pace herself, or else she would become overwhelmed and discouraged. He advised that she begin with 10 pages a day. Scott would check in with her about the pages. He would fill in the blanks and answer questions. When, she felt he, would, when he felt she was ready, he increased the amount from 10 to 30 and then 40 pages a day. Around the same time, he gave Sheila a large black ledger and advised her to divide her life into segments from the age of three months until she arrived in Hollywood. Scott encouraged Sheila to write it all down, everything she knew or remembered. He sectioned it into seven parts. Scott told her that each of the seven parts must have a theme and a dramatic idea, a plot and a cast of characters. He encouraged her to write her life story one day. Once, Scott made some literary reference, and when she asked him about it, he snapped, Oh, everybody knows that. Sheila replied that she didn't, and she was so vulnerable. It was then that the College of One began, and Scott never sneered at her lack of education again. In Sheila's memoir, and later, in a book-length treatment, The College of One, she recalls what happened when she asked Scott to teach her about books and ideas. He devised a curriculum of 200 books across subjects—poetry, novels, history, politics, philosophy, economics, art, and music. He typed up her syllabus and kept a copy in the file of his personal papers. As bad as things were when he went off the wagon, Scott ultimately redeems himself by how generous and serious he was about Sheila Graham's education— When he was up to his eyes in debt and struggled to find work in Hollywood, Scott could have used that time to write and earn money, either with screenplays or the stories he sold to magazines. Instead, he devoted time every night to help Sheila gain an education. He had estimated that in two years she could graduate and he would make sure that she had a cap and gown ceremony and received a diploma from the College of One. For a poor girl who started work at 14, education was the rain that ended a lifelong drought. It was the first hope she had that she might not always feel inferior. When Sheila wrote about what the experience gave her, she stresses that it wasn't just what he gave her to read and their discussions. The College of One taught her how to analyze what she read, how to make evaluations, draw conclusions, how to think. Fitzgerald lit the fire and showed her how to learn and how to keep learning. All her life, she was enriched by the discoveries she had made with him. As a poor girl from an orphanage with no training, just instinct and a sharp memory, it allowed her to grow as a woman of substance. She would no longer be an outsider with her nose pressed to the glass. She joined in the talk. She no longer lived with the constant fear and anxiety that she would be caught out, unmasked as a fraud, and revealed as a common gutter snipe. The College of One gave Sheila confidence, self-worth, and the wherewithal to make her own way in a highly competitive industry. She described herself before she embarked on the College of One. I was like a balloon filled with air, smooth and soft to the touch, But God help me if anyone flicked a pin. After a while, Sheila held her own in charades with Dorothy Parker. Her confidence soared. Even though she was busy making visits to the different studios, going to premieres, interviews, luncheons, and all the things Sheila needed to do to file seven columns each week, still she set aside at least three hours every day to her studies. In addition to Proust, she read Keats, Shakespeare, Dickens, Yeats, Shaw, Thackeray, Colette, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Ibsen, Joyce, Stein, Hemingway, and Scott Fitzgerald. She bought the books for Scott bought the books for Sheila and made special covers, which he annotated with blurbs and quotes and funny notes. For the cover of The Golden Treasury of Poetry, he wrote a hard-boiled spoof of Ode on a Grecian Urn, which he retitled, A Great Cup They Dug Up. As good as new! And think how long it was buried! We could learn a lot of history about it, and the rubes in ancient history, it began. Scott annotated the books with notes and observations. Nearly every day he engaged Sheila in long discussions. They would read bits to each other and sometimes act out the characters' parts. During the period that they were playing their roles in the College of One, Sheila tried to write a play called Dame Rumor. Scott acted as her editor. The plot was based on Sheila's life. The central character was a gossip columnist who was put in danger by the secrets she knew about the stars. Sheila wrote a prologue and two acts before she abandoned the project. Even though she never finished the play, she learned a great deal from Scott when she was writing it. He urged her not to use the first thought or even the second. Go deep inside your mind, he said, to the third and fourth layer. What's translated there, Scott advised, from the deep mind is the best of what a writer is capable of. He told her that she should strive to make the reader see the people and the ideas on the page. The intimacies Sheila knew with Scott made her feel safe and loved, She once said to him, "'If only I could walk into your eyes "'and close the lids behind me "'and leave all the world outside.'" Scott wrote her words down, as he was always thinking about making her a character in his work, which he did. She became the character Kathleen in his last novel, The Last Tycoon. F. Scott Fitzgerald had tried his luck three times in Hollywood. The first time, in 1927, he was brought out to write a script for Constance Talmadge. The production was to be called Lipstick. The studio wanted a scenario about a magic lipstick that made every man want to kiss Miss Talmage. Scott thought he could knock it out in between drinks with his neighbor, John Barrymore. Scott also had another distraction from writing the script by cheating on Zelda with 17-year-old actress Lois Moran. He was 31 at the time. Screenwriting seemed like it should be a lark for him, an easy task for a serious novel like Fitzgerald. But he couldn't seem to master the art and left town with Zelda once the studio rejected his script, without stopping to pay their uh, hotel bill. In 1931, Irving Thalberg invited Fitzgerald out to Metro to write Red-Headed Woman for Jean Harlow. During an exclusive party hosted by Irving and Norma Shearer in their home, Scott made a drunken ass of himself and insulted many of the stars. Again, drinking got in the way and he couldn't finish the script. Irving gave the assignment to Anita Luce. Then, in 1937, when Fitzgerald was scraping the bottom, he was invited back to MGM by Edwin Knopf, a story editor who had written a script based on Scott and Zelda. Knopp admired Fitzgerald and was dismayed by the series of essays that Scott had published in Esquire the year before. They were confessional pieces that began with the appropriately titled The Crack-Up. His MGM contract was for $1,000 a week, which proved godsend to the author who was $40,000 in debt, along with his debts to publishers and friends who had made loans on advancements. He had to pay for Zelda's ongoing care in North Carolina. There were Scotty's school fees, as well as Scott's own expenses. Scott took a bungalow in the Garden of Alla. He never grew accustomed to the collaborative screenwriting format in Hollywood. Studios nearly always used more than one writer for a picture and viewed revision and group input as a central part of the process. Fitzgerald worked on many scripts in MGM, such as A Yank in Oxford, The Women, Madame Curie. He worked on Infidelity, a property meant for Joan Crawford, until it was rejected outright by the production code censors. The sole screenwriting credit he received was for Three Comrades from 1938, which starred Margaret Sullivan, Robert Taylor, and Robert Young. Initially, Scott was delighted to work with producer Joseph L. Mankiewicz on Three Comrades, but when he learned that Mankiewicz rewrote his screenplay, he became enraged, began to refer to the producer as monkey bitch, and then went on a wild three-day drunken bender. Although his first contract option in MGM was picked up, his second was not, and Fitzgerald spent the rest of his career in Hollywood doing short-term projects. The most infamous of his assignments was captured in the novel The Disenchanted, written by Bud Schulberg. It's a fictionalized account of when the young writer, the son of former head of Paramount Studios, was teamed with Fitzgerald to write Winter Carnival for the producer Walter Wanger. In the novel, the film is titled Love on Ice. It's a collegiate picture set in a stand-in for Dartmouth, the alma mater for Wanger and Schulberg. Schulberg had written his senior thesis on Fitzgerald, his literary hero, and was starstruck when they met. The writers were then sent out east to Dartmouth to get exterior shots and atmosphere for the college winter Mardi Gras scenes. What follows in the novel is a blistering account of Fitzgerald, renamed Manly Halliday by Schulberg, who takes the name Shep. Each time they begin to write the story, Manly Halliday lapses into stories from his past, many about a character clearly based on Zelda. Schulberg's prose is as tight as a drum. He describes the character based on Fitzgerald's in terms of a genius gone to seed. At times, Shep was thinking, his face looks as cold as stone and his eyes look three days dead. When the August writer shouts her Eureka moment and rouses the producer based on Walter Wanger from his bed at 5 a.m. for a story conference, Shep observes he had gone home to a prose style as an old blind horse finds its way back to its stall. Manly, as Scott wrote beautiful sentences that belonged in a novel rather than dialogue for a Hollywood screenplay. Schulberg stayed with Scott during a bender that lasted for days and he marveled that the man could be blind drunk and still have perfect recall remembering small details about what had happened and what was important Scott could go for months without a drink but when he fell off the wagon he pulled the wagon over the cliff with him it took some doing for Sheila to finally call it quits she had endured years of a cycle where his quiet sobriety was broken by an epic binge that lasted days or weeks, followed by his need for, sec- for seclusion and the care of a doctor and nurse while he dried out. He wasn't very inventive at hiding his drinking, unlike, say, Errol Flynn, who, during the making of Captain Blood for Warner Brothers, used a syringe to inject naval oranges with vodka, Jack Warner thought Errol had taken up some kind of health kick, when in fact he was just disguising his drinking. Perce Westmore, the head of the makeup department in Warner's, staked out the studio early one morning to find out the answer to Errol's secret stash. When he caught uh, um, the actor injecting booze into the oranges, they both laughed. Fitzgerald resented any challenge to the amount he imbibed, and he didn't trouble himself by expending any energy to hide the evidence. He would stash empties in dresser drawers, kitchen cabinets, or roll them under the bed. Scott's favorite place to hide a bottle was in the, bank, in the back of a toilet tank. For a while, he had his young secretary, Frances Kroll, collect the empty bottles and then drop them in a ditch on her drive home. It had gotten to be so familiar, his Jekyll and Hyde routine, that Sheila could tell whether he was sober just by looking at the state of his clothes. Sober, he was immaculately dressed, drunk, his clothes were ragged, torn, wrinkled, and he carried a filthy handkerchief. Sheila wrote, living with him was like sitting on top of a volcano, picturesque but uncomfortable. In The Crack-Up, a confessional essay for Esquire magazine in 1936, Scott had written, The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. He might have been describing his own Jekyll and Hyde. When he was sober, he was gentle, carefully dressed, and had polished manners. Drunk, he was like a naughty child in dirty clothes and had coarse manners. Ordinarily, he objected to any blue language, but in his cups, he held forth with a string of profanities. Sheila felt guilty because as much as she hated how alcohol changed him, once he started on the gin, there would be a period of hot sex that she couldn't help but enjoy. Alcohol lowered his inhibitions, making a man who couldn't take his socks off a wild and passionate lover. Invariably, he would get to the point where he was unable to perform and then ultimately had trouble doing much of anything until he eventually passed out. After a bender, Scott would ask Sheila not to see him for a few days while he dried out with the care of a doctor and nurse. For a man who needed benzodrine to wake up and write and Nembutal to fall asleep, The booze made a dangerous cocktail. If you mix his addictions with diabetes and nagging tuberculosis, it's a miracle Scott could write anything by the time he met Sheila Graham. One day, she found a gun in one of his drawers. She tried to sneak it out when she thought he was sleeping, but Scott had been watching her, and he jumped on her before she could leave the room. On screen, the the, the scene plays out so violently. It's the most powerful scene in the film. Anyone who says that Carr and Peck are miscast deny the power of their performances. Their performances ring as clear and true as the Daily Bells and Black Narcissus. Carr may be a poised lady and Peck a likable gentleman, but in the scene, all of that unravels. Peck lashes out like a madman, when he struggles with Sheila for the gun. Deborah Carr takes the word straight from Sheila's mouth. When they stop fighting over the gun, she yells, take it and shoot yourself, you son of a bitch. I didn't pull myself out of the gutter to waste my life on a drunk like you. In real life, it took much more than a struggle over a gun to make Sheila turn her back on Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was just getting started after that. At one point, the worst of it, he humiliated her in front of his nurse. Scott had been having an affair with the nurse, so she was essentially Sheila's rival. Like a man possessed, when he was drunk, he spilled her deepest secrets and made her an object of ridicule. Scott revealed Sheila's deepest secrets at volume. She was Lily Sheil, an orphan from a slum, a Jew. He screamed it again and again in Sheila's face while the nurse stood by and watched. He taunted Sheila with what she told him in a moment of privacy. He had betrayed her in the worst way. Then he sent a telegram to her employer in New York, John Wheeler. Scott told the man that she was a fraud. She was finished at all the studios and that he should sack her. Later, he turned up legless at her home And intimidated Sheila's secretary into letting him in. He snuck into her bedroom and stole her prized silver fox coat. he had given it to her two years before, the first real present she had ever received. Sheila was so careful of that coat that she didn't even lean back against a chair or while she was in the car because she didn't want to crush the fur. He had meant the gift as a scarlet letter, a secret jab at her willingness to accept such a present as a sure sign that she was cheap, but Sheila didn't see that. She was proud of the coat. It was a symbol of what she worked so hard for, all the things she felt she would never have, when she felt like an ugly child in the orphanage. Scott Fitzgerald stole the silver fox, then he wrapped it up and posted it as a Christmas present to his daughter Scotty, who was living in the dorms at Vassar. He threatened her life, he humiliated her to a rival, tried to ruin her career, and then stole one of her most prized possessions. Sheila Graham had finally had enough. Instantly, her calendar was full of invitations to go out with attractive men to Sierros, the Macombo, parties, and movie premieres. But eventually, she took him back when he promised to stop drinking. Sheila reports in her memoir that he drank nothing but Coca-Cola for the last year and two weeks of his life. He restored himself to dignity through a teetotal lifestyle where he was again quiet and hard-working man. On the 21st of December 1940 they spent a quiet day together. They were waiting for Scott's doctor to visit. Scott had been having heart episodes the previous night. They were In the cinema to see Rosalind Russell and Melvin Douglas in This Thing Called Love, and when he stood up at the end, he became dizzy and weak. Scott stumbled and shook. He was terrified that everyone would think he was drinking again. Faces in the crowd smirked and reacted as, oh, there goes Scott Fitzgerald, drunk as a skunk again. He had a very powerful sweet tooth, His craving for sugar nearly matched his thirst for gin. While they waited for the doctor, Sheila uh, wanted to sit quietly and wait, but Scott wanted to walk over to Schwab's and get ice cream. She had a Hershey bar stashed aside for herself, so she offered it to Scott so he wouldn't miss the doctor. Scott sat licking chocolate from his fingers and read a Princeton alumni magazine as classical records played. Suddenly, Scott bolted out of his chair. Sheila recalled that he often did that when he had a bright idea. She waited for him to speak. He lurched from his seat and grabbed hold of her mantelpiece. Then he fell to the floor. Sheila thought he had fainted. Scott was dead. His heart had failed. An ambulance arrived, but he was already gone. When they took Scott away, Sheila never saw him again. Scotty had asked that Sheila not attend the funeral. Later, she packed up his things to send on. She wanted to pack an empty frame where her picture had stood on Scott's dresser. She imagined that the empty frame frame would haunt Zelda. Sheila removed her photo. On the back, Scott had written, Portrait of a Prostitute. Sheila was devastated. In real life, Sheila had always been terrified of two things, drunkenness and madness. With Scott Fitzgerald, she had both. The the story of Sheila and Scott has many chapters. Having read about their relationship from multiple angles, it seems amazing that they were only together for three and a half years. It seems more like a decade's worth of experiences. It's interesting to see how their story changes over time, the way it unfolds in Sheila's retelling. When she writes about him in in Beloved Infidel and in the Garden of Allah, he was redeemed by more than a year of sobriety. By the time she wrote College of One, she revised the story to include Francis Kroll's admission that Scott fell off the wagon. Francis recalled that he drank a bottle of wine at dinner one night when Sheila was out out of town covering a Gary Cooper premiere. Then Sheila admits that Francis said he drank more often than that, but she doesn't really clarify how much or how often. Sheila's son Robert revises the story further in his book. Francis Kroll told him that Scott never stopped drinking. He didn't just fall off the wagon once, Scott drank all the time, steadily. The only thing that changed was that he gave up the epic Benders. He had empty bottles of gin hidden all around the house and put them in bags for collection at the curb. Beloved Infidel began as a 5,000-word story that Sheila began during the summer of 1939. Like everything else that Sheila wrote, Scott often revised it, took his pencil to it. It sat in a drawer until the mid-1950s. Jerry Wald, a successful writer and producer, wanted to buy Sheila's story and adapt it to the screen. But he didn't want it to begin as a script. He wanted Sheila to write the memoir first in book form, which he would then adapt at 20th Century Fox Studio. The project had false starts when ghostwriters dropped out after Sheila was advised to put everything down on a tape recorder. Hollywood and publishing houses had often used that method to get a book out of a star, but Sheila was a writer by trade. So then she sat down and wrote a long manuscript and handed it to another publisher to to, uh, take over. Then she wound up doing the revisions. By the end, the book was a national bestseller. The studio paid Sheila $100,000 for the rights. Once the script was finished, Jerry Wald sent her a copy as a courtesy. He rang Sheila early one morning to ask what she thought. She replied that it was awful, so he paid her for two weeks to to write revisions to the script. Sheila says by the end, they discarded her rewrites entirely. Like many authors, Sheila Graham was dissatisfied with how her book was cast on screen. She felt Deborah Carr was too prim and ladylike and too thin. She would have preferred her friend Marilyn Monroe to play herself on screen. And for Scott, she would have chosen Richard Basehart. She thought Peck was too tall and too mannered. Cast as Fitzgerald, Gregory Peck looks too tan and brimming with rude health. In reality, Fitzgerald was as pale as a cocktail onion. Critics largely agreed with Sheila's feelings about miscast leads, but I don't think the objections are fair. Deborah Carr turns in a beautiful performance. When she exaggerates posh mannerisms, it seems like a spot-on depiction of how an impoverished woman who becomes a success would behave. Sheila had fabricated a background as a swell and even had photographs doctored to support her story that she was from a wealthy family. Sheila's haughty turned-up chin helps sell her public image. The American newspaper boss Biser acts act as a society dame who just happens to write controversial columns as a lark. One scene in the film lacks context, so it doesn't really have as much sense as it could. Sheila was never a big drinker. Food was her thing. Once, when she was working in New York before she moved to Hollywood, she sat at a bar and had five whiskey sours lined up in front of her. Another woman in the bar noticed and proceeded to watch a rare sight, a public a publicly drunken woman. It turned out that Sheila ordered the cocktails just for the maraschino cherries. She didn't actually drink the cocktails. The woman, Margaret Margaret Brainerd, went over to talk to Sheila. Margaret worked in Saks Fifth Avenue. They became fast friends. At one point, Margaret was moving out to L.A., and Sheila invited her to stay with her. When Scott learned of the plan, he found a flat and rented it for Margaret. Nothing could interfere with his access to and privacy with Sheila. But in the film, we see she- Sheila with all those drinks, but without an explanation. The scene with Constance Bennett on the studio appears in just over 10 minutes into Beloved Infidel. The scene loses something. As Sheila, Deborah Carr looks completely unshaken When she encounters the bitchy actress, renamed Janet Pierce for the screen, who's played by Karen Booth. Miss Pierce attempts to run off the set to avoid being roasted in print by the gossip columnist. Mostly the scene suffers because it happens before Sheila meets Scott Fitzgerald and the audience loses the way he took up her side and made her feel like she wasn't alone in the world, their first bond together. As Sheila's daughter, Wendy Westbrook Ferry, put it, her mother was a real-life Gatsby figure. She made herself into a success from humble beginnings. When Carr as Graham walks around stars in Hollywood or the writer's enclave in the Garden of Allah, she's performing always on. Carr wears an updo that is as smooth and carefully coiffed as the story she tells about herself and the American picture industry. In the film, when Carr's Sheila confesses the truth about her past to Scott on the Beach, her hair is wild and undone, as long-guarded secrets spill out. In some ways in this picture, Deborah Carr's hair is like a mood ring. It changes color depending on the mood. Sometimes it's deep blonde as when she confesses, and then other times, in more private or sexual moments with Greg Peck, it heats up to near Titian. In another scene, Sheila's career gets a big break when she's invited to Chicago to broadcast as part of a radio show. Scott joins her for the trip, blind, drunk, and out of control. Deborah Carr said that Greg Peck was so believable in the scene that it frightened her. Gregory Peck's voice is keenly suited to tease out the contours of regret, of the anguish that warps Scott in his cycle of addiction. The deep, halting quality of his voice echoes the morning after repentance that he must have felt when he was drowning in debt and sabotaging his ability to write with drink. The picture definitely edits the worst parts of their relationship. Scott is made far more of a romantic figure than he was in real life. But Sheila loved him despite everything. Even her children felt a deep connection to Scott Fitzgerald. Leon Shamroy's Technicolor Cinematography is so crisp and gorgeous, with blues as deep as the Pacific Ocean. The picture washes over you like the surf in Malibu, cold and fresh. The following books helped me to write the episode. Beloved Infidel by Sheila Graham and Gerald Frank, published in 1958. College of One, the story of Hal F. Scott Fitzgerald, educated the woman he loved, by Sheila Graham, published in 1967. The Garden of Allah by Sheila Graham, published in 1970. The Late Lily Sheel by Sheila Graham, published in 1978. Hollywood Revisited by Sheila Graham, published in 1984. Intimate Lies, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Sheila Graham, Her Son's Story by Robert Westbrook, published in 1995. The Crack-Up by F. Scott Fitzgerald, published in 1936. The Love of the Last Tycoon by F. Scott Fitzgerald, published in 1950-41. The Disenchanted by Bud Schulberg, published in 1950. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 65 when I talk about Lucille Ball and Beauty for the Asking from 1939. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not share a nice word on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook. Thanks very much.